I'm willing to show up. I'm willing to not walk away when things get a little mm. little hard. I, I've I've been able to stay at it, and and as, you know, I continue to find myself at loss as to how to go forward at points because this stuff can just be really complex and really hard. This is a new angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, we're back. Thanks everyone for the feedback. Though last week's episode was less than two minutes long, I got some incredibly helpful comments and critiques. Thank you. Folks want us to keep going and that's exactly what we're going to do, albeit with a redoubled commitment to amplifying a more diverse set of voices. I have to do better. And in this effort, I'm sure to stumble and struggle and fail, but I promise I will try and I hope you'll stick around, hold us accountable and get involved in the conversation. My guest today is Tobin miller Shear, Professor of History and Director of the African American Studies Program here at the University of Montana. We recorded this conversation in early May before the murder of George Floyd and the associated demonstrations. That conversation covers several important topics, including anti-racism, race as a biological and social construction, and the reasons why UM is perhaps unlike the unlikely home to such a strong African American Studies program. Tobin also speaks eloquently and passionately about his journey as a white man in this space. Since so much has changed since we first recorded, Tobin joins me now to share some thoughts on the state of play right now. Tobin, thanks for joining me during what is no doubt a super busy time. Glad to be here with you, Justin. So I figured just a couple quick things to kind of get us uh, up to date and, and preface our main conversation. But first of all, Let's get to the elephant in the room. Why should anybody listen to uh, a white guy talking about this stuff right now? Well, it's such an incredibly important question. I was really grateful to hear you raise the issue of racial identity of your guests right out, out of the gate. I guess the short answer is I am being asked by my colleagues of color, both locally and across the country, to speak all I can, particularly to white people, about the moment we're facing right now and what our responsibilities are as white people to engage in the work of dismantling racism. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely sort of have struggled with the best way to kind of grapple with these topics in this this podcast. I mean, it seemed uh, absolutely necessary to do something. You know, this notion that silence is um, complicity in this moment, I think is, is pretty accurate. But at the same time, I just don't want to like go find um, the only African-American I, I know in town and say, hey, get on the show. That doesn't seem like the right thing. So how are you kind of um, responding to this moment? I mean, you're getting requests to, to speak. Um, and I think you got to be careful on how you represent uh, yourself and other groups and sort of navigate that whole thing. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just knowing how to respond to the tremendous volume of requests that are coming across my desk. I'm guessing in the last week, I've uh, had requests either for phone conversations or online engagement with about 100 folks, most of them white. And I've begun to notice a number of things that I've checked out with my colleagues of color and seems to be consistent about what many of us are noticing along this uh, sort of not only in this moment, but in the broader history of when these kind of things have happened. And maybe I'll just note a couple of them. I mean, one of the things that my colleague Murray Pierce has pointed out to me that I have also noticed over time in this country, we as white people just don't really take seriously the task of talking about and addressing racism unless violence has been associated with Mm. it. And that's troubling to me, but I know that it's been consistent across time and is recurring again. Um, I've also noticed as I've um, speaking and engaging with our white folks that people are having a hard time putting these events in historical context, recognizing that there have been many other instances of urban rebellions instigated by police violence. I did my own personal research. I've been able to document more than 45 such instances just since 1964. And 
there's it's not accidental that we see that correlation. We just haven't found a way as a nation yet to get to the root causes of that police violence directed towards community of color, communities of color. Um, I mean, maybe the other sort of general observation I'll make about the conversations I've been having with white folks is that I keep raising the point that in the end, I think our collective actions are not only going to be judged by what we're doing right now in response to these calls for justice and uh, and actually changing and dismantling systemic racism, but what are we going to be doing a year from now and five years from now? And I think that probably is in the end the more important conversation and the important the more important direction I'm wanting to uh, point people towards and prepare them to do that longer term work. Yeah, and you have some powerful writing about this in your recent blog post. You mentioned the blog at the at the end of our interview, and I'll direct people to that as well. Uh, one thing that stood out to me in, in your writing and in our conversation before this um, before this pre interview is you've you've chosen the word rebellion to describe um, the demonstrations, protests, activities, etc. You know, why did you choose that word in particular? Yeah, it's very deliberate choice on my part and of my colleagues. It's consistent with historical scholarship because to describe the events that we're seeing now as riots rhetorically works to separate the actions that are taking place in our urban and suburban communities, the majority of which are nonviolent, from the political agenda that those actions are calling for. Riots are instances of chaos. Rebellions are intentional. And I think that's what we're seeing here. All the evidence is pointing to that reality and not just chaos. Yeah, I urge people to really think about the language that we see in the media from our leaders, from our politicians, and be thinking about the implications of that language and the assumptions embedded in it. Um, Finally, and I want to be respectful of your time, Tobin, yeah, do you do you drive any hope? Drive any hope out of these events that you're seeing? Oh, I vacillate on a daily basis from being brought to tears by the messages that my students are sending me of what they are doing on the streets, what they're doing in their workplaces, what they're doing uh, in conversations with family, to feeling just overwhelmed by the raw hurt and pain of the present moment and the long history that it represents. But, I mean, just yesterday, the gym I belong to here in Missoula made the decision to separate from the CrossFit brand after the CrossFit CEO came out with some very racist comments. Mm. And I was moved again and again and again to see this group of folk who I've had many conversations with over the year about the work I do. They've been unremittedly supportive of me when I was being threatened by white nationalists. It was members of that gym who were first to say to me and to say it repeatedly, we're going to protect you. We're going to stand by you. And to see them take this principled stand by now, right now, just it all gets me choked up even as I talk about it. So those kind of things I think are really hopeful but we've got so much work to do and such a long way to go that I'm hesitant to to embrace the word hope too quickly. But there are signs of movement forward in the midst of this truly challenging moment in which we are facing as a nation. Indeed, it is does feel like a, a hopeful time. At the same time, uh, your words on your blog, like, I don't really care what you're doing today. I care what you're doing five years from now, uh, resonate with me and uh, it certainly motivate me to... to to keep the commitment and endure. Um, Tobin, thanks so much for carving out uh, time to to speak with us again. And um, yeah, now I bring you our full interview. Okay, so today we have Professor Tobin Miller-Shearer. Tobin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Very happy to be here, Justin. It took us a while to pull this one off. I've sort of been (laughs) stringing you along. (laughs) For some reason, this particular conversation just had to get rescheduled several times, and that is entirely my fault. So I appreciate your <laughs> patience, and I'm really excited to to have this conversation with you today. Thanks for doing it. Well, the anticipation made the wait all the more worthwhile. <laughs> well, we'll see. That is yet to be seen uh, or heard, I suppose. So anyway, let's before we get into it, how are you holding up? We're catching it toward the end of the semester. Uh, you know, we're, we, you're 
sharing this experience of transitioning to remote learning? What's been your experience and, and how do you feel like your students have gotten through it? Well, I'm on a particularly high point right now, having just in the last three days walked with two of my master's students through their successful defense of their thesis, and they both did just wonderfully, it, despite all the realities that we're dealing here awesome. with the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's been really fun. And then I also just got through grading a set of 20-page research papers for the third time through, which I regularly do in my writing classes. And again, the students totally rose to the challenge, um, many of them having to deal with very challenging life situations, but just did wonderfully. Um, so, I mean, obviously these day-to-day the -day experience varies uh, emotionally, et cetera, but um, I've just been so enthused and impressed by the resilience of my students in responding to the situation and staying up with their schoolwork. That's no small thing. Awesome. That is so good to hear. So, Tobin, you are a professor of history. You're also a director of our African-American studies program. The path you took to get here to the University of Montana is fascinating. So can you just sort of lay out your, your professional path and, and how you got here? Yeah, absolutely. So my partner and I met and were married at Eastern Mennonite College in Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I was also born. I didn't grow up there, but my dad was a student there when I was born back in 1965. And, and after did you, did we you grow up in the Mennonite tradition? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. my parents are both from the Mennonite community. My wife and her family and her parents are both from the Mennonite community. So we are generationally, um, we can go, we go right, right back to the beginning of the Anabaptist movement in uh, the early 16th century. Wow. Um, but uh, at any rate, we met and were married in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and immediately after graduation, we went to New Orleans, where we served with the uh, Mennonite Central Committee, which is a relief and development organization of the Mennonite family of churches, and did some nonprofit work there. Uh, my work was sort of split between editing a peace and justice newsletter at Loyola University and administering the overall work of the it varied between nine and as many as 14 volunteers who came to the city to work for two-year terms. Um, and part of that started off with a pretty major crisis in my own life of coming to terms with my racism and basically not being able at that point to work with a black man as my boss, hmm. which sent me down a path of introspection and writing and trying to figure out how this had happened that eventually led after our six years in New Orleans to being invited by the national headquarters to start a anti-racism program that I then did in collaboration with my colleague, Regina Shan who's an African-American woman. And we co-founded a group called Damascus Road, which was an anti-racism collective that worked within the Mennonite family of churches and some other um, denominational uh, offices, universities, colleges, sure. congregations, et cetera, et cetera. So did that for mm, about 15 years and discovered at the end of that time that I really liked the opportunities I had to talk in college classes when we would be doing consulting on university and college campuses. And it said, you know, I'm going to try to do this mid-career shift. At that point, I was in my late 30s. And Cheryl graciously agreed to support me in that. Her work as a nurse made her career path very flexible and mm -hmm. open to relocation. And I ended up going to Northwestern University, did a dual PhD in history and religious studies with an emphasis on the African-American experience. And in the midst of the job hunt the following year, this position opened up. Uh, I had another option, but what I really liked about moving to Missoula, Montana, was the opportunity to engage it with a department that emphasized both teaching and research equally and would allow me to build on that experience of anti-racism, educating and organizing that I'd spent a lot of time working at professionally. And you came in directly as a, as a rookie professor, but also a, immediately as director of the African-American <laughs> Studies Program. Is that right? Yeah, it was a little bit crazy, yeah. but that's the path I took. So it was a pretty intense uh, first number of years as I was trying to get my scholarship and teaching in order and also trying to revive a program that had become such moribund despite having been 
the country's third oldest program started back in 1968 by Ulysses Das, who'd come here from Chicago and somewhat by chance stumbled into this university environment and through a chance conversation with the president at that time, um, was invited to start teaching African-American studies and started the program. Well, we'll talk a lot about that program, but I want to go back to your experience working um, in the Mennonite Church. I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned experience of your own racism, and mm-hmm. you know, is 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 what? How would you even conceptualize race within the church? Is it is it is there much diversity within the church membership? Um, and then within yeah. that, yeah, yeah, what's that? What's that look and feel like? So Mennonite Church, which was the community that I uh, grew up in and and worked in professionally, and just for those who aren't familiar with the Mennonite community, it's one of the historic peace churches defined by its commitment to nonviolence, by a strong emphasis on mutual aid and support, strong emphasis on service and separation from society. So if you sort of can picture the Amish, there would be close theological relatives of the Mennonites um, who are also emphasis, emphasize separation from society, but Mennonites wouldn't take it to the same degree in terms of, at least most Mennonite groups, in terms of their technology. Mm-hmm. But um, the Mennonite community today worldwide actually has more people of color on the continent of Africa and in South America than in North America at this point. Really? Okay. I and had even, no idea. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. And even within the United States, the largest Mennonite congregation is Bishop Leslie Francisco III's congregation in Norfolk, Virginia, Calvary um, Christian community there. And uh, it's predominantly African-American. So there's a whole history as to how that community became engaged with this group that had been a long time associated as being Germanic, Swiss folks, sometimes Russians, um, and, and rather sort of isolated from society. Uh, but the challenge that my colleagues and I faced in working with the Mennonite community on issues of race is that on the one hand, there was a stated racially egalitarian position, but that wasn't lived out at the grassroots. Okay. It wasn't lived out in the process of actually integrating congregations, actually integrating institutions where many of those institutions were following white norms and standards. And the minute that a Latinx person, a Native American person, African American, Asian American would show up on staff, the racism comes pouring out. Sure. And so we were trying to equip groups to deal with that sort of naivete, very egalitarian embrace of diversity, but not having a lot of experience of how to actually deal with it. Yeah, and so developing this anti-racism programming. I mean, first of all, let's let's sort of define the concept of of anti-racism, and mm-hmm. then from there, how do you develop a program to to cultivate that concept? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember the time that my colleague Regina Shan Stoltzfus and I wrote an article for the Mennonite Church National Press about why we chose the term anti-racism, because we were getting a lot of pushback by people who said that's just so negative. And the argument we made is that the idea of racism is itself such a powerful, systemic, institutionally ingrained force in U.S. society and the institutions that constitute it, that any effort to dismantle it is inherently positive. So the anti-racism sort of rubric is applied to, in most instances, um, Ibram X. Kendi has, I think, done a great job in popularizing that more of late, but that where one is actively working to dismantle the systems of racism in society. And the emphasis here is on the action, that it's deliberate, it's sustained and focused. It's not simply accepting the status quo, which from my colleagues in my perspective would simply be a matter of perpetuating and participating in the racism of society. Our argument is that most institutions in the United States were created, designed, and structured to serve white people and white society at a time that people didn't even conceive of building those institutions to serve anyone but white folks because African-Americans were considered three-fifths of a person and Native Americans weren't even counted at all. Um, so we put that, that's sort of where that language comes sure. from. 
Um, what does it look like? Uh, in our case, what we did was partner with a number of other denominationally based anti-racism efforts that were at that point sort of coalescing together under the uh, aegis of an organization called Crossroads Ministries. And they brought a model to the table that would equip internal teams made up of a, a wide variety of levels of the institution, so CEOs down to entry-level staff people, mm -hmm. and put in place a year-long process that envisioned a training and organizing component so that the team itself would be trained to do anti-racism workshops in the context of their own institution, but they also put in place five, 10, and 20-year plans to dismantle the racism of that institution. And we're excited to say that many of those institutions we worked back, uh, back in the mid 90s through the 2000s are now bearing the fruits of those efforts. Um, the Mennonite Church denomination, Mennonite Church USA is now led by Glenn Guyton, an African-American man who participated in our Damascus Road process. Iris Dalian Hartshorn is one of his most important uh, staff people, Latinx women. Also, of course, white folks on their staff, but that's been a transformative process. We are by no means the only ones who have been part of that, but it definitely was connected to and came out of that Damascus Road work. And so that, like you said, got you in the classroom, got you teaching, and I'm sure kindled a, a spark for, uh, for education. You know, pursued your PhD and now are here at the University of Montana. I mean, when you think of robust program i mean a lot of the stuff you're 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 describing i mean a lot of this work happens in college campuses and in these sorts of intellectually charged environments yet one might not think that a, a robust african-american studies program would be at the university of montana tell us tell us why there's such a robust program here and and why it's important yeah i mean part of it is this historical circumstances as I mentioned earlier with the great foundation that Dr. Ulysses Doss laid down when he in 68. And that program has continued to grow and develop over time. The way I tried to make the program make sense, and it may be obvious, I don't know to your listeners, but we should be clear here that I'm a white man um, and that I make that evidence that I'm aware of it on the first day of every class I teach, I walk in and tell, say to my students, I want you to know that I know I'm white. That's not a point of confusion for me. Um, but one of the things I do within that role is try to demonstrate that African-American history is not something that just one group should know about or care about, but it's such a central part of our nation's history and our state's history that everyone should know about it. Obviously there's gonna be tensions, very appropriate tensions with me as a white person directing this program, but I've been blessed by gracious students and colleagues from the African-American community who have supported me and entered into that tension with me. And I think it's particularly important to have a program like this at the University of Montana, because even though many of our students have not had if our white students have not had normal, natural, or frequent engagement with African-Americans, they, like many other white people in suburban and rural communities across this country, nonetheless have ideas about the black community due to the pervasiveness of culture and um, other rep social representations in media and elsewhere. And we need to develop ever greater sophistication and nuance within our white population in order to speak intelligently and um, with sophistication about issues of racism in our country. And I think the African-American Studies Program at the University of Montana is doing a small piece of that work and trying to invite students into that engagement. I've just again been so blessed by students who have walked alongside me and gotten really excited about doing that work in this kind of context. So let's talk about how that work is done. Because we got such a, a wide array of students. We got, like you said, a lot of students from Montana that, that don't have much contact with many forms of diversity. I mean, we've got the diversity in some forms, but you know, it's largely a white state. We've got a, 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 a robust Native American population as well. But the, the outside of that, uh, 
diversity is kind of small. So you got a lot of kids coming in with a lot of experience. How do they kind of get interested yeah. and appreciative of this of this topic mm-hmm. and these values that you're 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 working on? Well, I I think you're exactly right. Well, we are not as of the last available census data, we are not the whitest state in the union. That's Vermont, but we are the least black state in the union. Um, but nonetheless, there has been a historic core of African-American students who've come to the University of Montana for a variety of reasons. Um, we have a, a very robust and active Black student union that my colleague Murray Pierce gives very capable leadership to. He and I are in close uh, contact and collaboration about the African-American Studies program as an academic initiative, the Black Study Union as a, a black student union rather as a place to support, enhance and encourage African-American leadership that he gives guidance to. But the diversity question is two things. On the one hand, we have to recognize the diversity that is present within our community, celebrate that and lift it up. On the other hand, in the classroom, I simply go about in asking my students to engage with integrity, focus, and creativity with the history, the literature, the music, the art forms, and the rich traditions that have emerged from that African-American experience. And in the midst of that immersion, engagement, and intellectual discussion of those traditions, Students get engaged, they get excited, they recognize that there's something that they can learn by listening to and sitting on the feet of that experience, of that body of knowledge. And uh, it's such a privilege to be in those classroom environments and see those light bulbs going off all the time. So how is that kind of, and and Tobin, I have to say, you're going to have to help me through this conversation in some ways, because... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I read and I think about this stuff as frequently as I can, but I also feel like I stumble through talking about it in certain ways. And sometimes mm-hmm. that discomfort prevents me from engaging. And so, yeah, help me out here. But I, my question is, how how do you, in the curriculum and in your thinking and communicating with students, how do you kind of talk about differences um, between cultures, between races, and then how do you talk about equality in those, you know, because yep. yep. there's just a bit, you know, that you read certain debates about, you know, whatever attribute is a social construction versus a biological construction and all these differences and mm-hmm. how categories are constructed. And it's a lot of times it's arbitrary. Yeah. Walk me through some of that thinking. Yeah, Absolutely. So I think that opens up two conversational pathways, one about the idea of race itself and one about the nature of systemic inequity. So at the very beginning of my introductory class, I always do pretty much a week in which we explore this very concept you reference of race as a social construct. And my take, I go through the whole history of that, how it was put in place, the United States sort of unique role in that development over time. But the takeaway that I try to have my students grapple with is to fully comprehend that race is both a biological myth and a social construct. And we have to hold those two in detention because if we say, oh, race is a biological construct, you know, it's all made up, it's human introduced, we could then suggest that the solution to the problem of racism is simply to be colorblind. But we know that doesn't work. Right. To ignore difference is to perpetuate the status quo. So that we have to recognize that this thing called race and all its various permutations is a social reality that does two things really well. First off, it um, does a great job of providing access to power and privilege, mm-hmm. and it does a great job of maintaining people in oppressed um, communities over time. 
And in our context, that then, then means that it does a great job of providing people who have come to be called white with access to power and privilege based on our skin tone, not because we're bad or because we have any particular um, racist will in our hearts, but because that's the way the systems are designed to, mm. to act. And we're seeing that right now in the COVID-19 crisis with the disproportionate impact of that pandemic on African-American, Native American communities in particular. And that has all to do about access to healthcare, about the ability of communities in, to social isolate because of the realities of our realty practices. All those institutional manifestations show up in this kind of horrific setting that we're in. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Anya Jabor, Regents Professor of History at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. So understanding that race does both of those things simultaneously is sort of the fundament of the historical analysis, the social analysis that we do in our classes. And what get, I get excited about is when my students begin to bring that kind of nuanced and sophisticated analytical framework to their analysis of contemporary events, to their analysis of historical events. So they can look, for example, as students of mine recently did, at, let's say, the 1968 um, Mexico City Olympics, in which we had two African-American athletes putting up the black power sign mm -hmm. with a fist in the air. And they then begin to understand, okay, how did that come about? Who were the actors behind it? What did it mean for them in that moment to feel it was necessary to claim a black power stance? Where does black power come from? Uh, how is that articulated over time? And so it becomes less of a reactionary move than it does one of emerging from the long black freedom struggle and looking to the future where those communities have a vision of not being bound by the, a system that continues to define them as their lives as cheap and as less valuable than those of white vows. Just today, seeing in the news um, the murder of an African-American man by two white men while the black man was out for a jog. I mean, this the, the, the association of those racial identities with threat are palpable, they're present, and they continue today. Yeah, so many threads to pull there, Tobin, and we could probably record for hours and hours. Um, <laughs> I guess one thing I think about here in Montana being that it's, it's such a white state is this concept of allyship, mm, uh, which mm -hmm. is probably, I would assume, important to cultivate on our campus and, yep, yep. you know, you, you had a blog post articulating some of your principles of allyship. Can you talk us through some of those, um, particularly, and, and maybe start by defining the concept of allyship, what it, what it means to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's such an important topic because so often, particularly when I'm speaking with white liberals, there's a sense of hand-wringing and being bound and immobilized by guilt, as if to say that there's really nothing I can do hmm. because look, I'm a privileged person, mea culpa, mea culpa. And what I've heard over the year, years from my African-American colleagues in particular is that kind of hand-wringing really doesn't do anyone any good. But are there ways in which white people can act as allies to walk alongside, in this instance, the Black freedom struggle, and to recognize that our work with that struggle is not about helping out another community. It's ultimately, I'm convinced, a way in which we can achieve some of our own liberation. And mm. there's much more I could talk about why I phrase it that way, but to get to the sort of nitty gritty of how we engage with effective allyship, I mean, it's some basic principles we've known for a long time that we do our own education, we listen carefully to people of color around us, we develop long-term relationships of trust across those racial lines. I've referred to my colleague, Regina Shanstoltz, who several times, she and I are still in touch with each other. Um, I've other African-American colleagues that 
I listen to very carefully and the relationship with, because I recognize that I also need to be constantly learning and um, working in more positive and effective ways to address the racism that I encounter. So that list, that posture of, of being a learner, um, of being willing to take risks in appropriate settings and being long-term relationships, all I think are, are pretty basic, but pretty key um, examples of the kind of uh, ways in which we as white people can act as effective allies alongside people of color. And there's some great organizations out there showing up for racial justice surge, SURJ does this sort of their thing. They, they work at that on an activist level. Um, their Robin D'Angelo's work on white fragility, I think is really helpful in mm -hmm. having white people understand some of the psychological elements and social elements in engaging in this work. Um, great stuff out there. Uh, as I'm hearing you reflect on that, I'm thinking about, talk about, and we're going to get into some of the hot button things you've wandered into as we go, but talk about your existence in this, in this work and in this role. I mean, you have to, how have you built credibility as a scholar, as an ally um, to colleagues in, in the African-American community and, you know, and some of the gatekeepers to that community, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm probably actually least well equipped to answer that question. It really should be more uh, rightly answered by my colleagues who have gifted me with trust over the years. When I have heard them reflect back to me why they are willing to work with me and give me a measure of trust, one of my colleagues recently was asked this question for something else, and he, I was showing his response, and he basically said he said about me that I'm willing to show up. I'm willing to not uh, walk away when things get a little mm. little hard. I, I've I've been able to stay at it over the years, and, and you know I continue to find myself at loss as to how to go forward at points because this stuff can just be really complex and really hard. And there have been points where I've just come to sense of desperation of not knowing how to deal with a given conflict. Um, when I was doing the Damascus Road work, it was some of the most challenging work I've done in my entire life. I mean, what I've often said is that although academic quibbles can seem to try to make so much out of so little, right. religious squabbles do that and say that it's a matter of life and death and <laughs> eternal life and death. So it becomes even more intense right, in right. religious environments. And I mean, there was a point where I can remember the editor at that point of the National Mennonite Church magazine calling me up and telling me, we can't print anything about you ever again, because when people see your name, he's talking about white people, see your name, they get red in the face. They get mad just by seeing your name. Really? Um, and so there was a period about 10 years where I basically didn't publish anything because uh, I was publishing mostly in the Mennonite Church Press. And that so was just you were canceled. You were canceled before cancel culture was a thing. And you came I back. You made it back. That, that happened. Well, it was a long journey back. So I mean, I uh, guess that's uh, you touched on that, like making mistakes and stumbling. And, and to me, like that's that's the thing that's the hardest to observe and to experience is that having conversations is difficult. And I feel like we're in a world where it's harder and harder to have hard conversations and to maybe explore ideas that are not you know, well-formed or acceptable or whatever. And, you know, so how do you, how do you, uh, within your classes or your own work as a scholar, how do you engage in some of these ideas in such a way that allows for people to navigate as they go, to learn and adapt and grow? Yeah, it's, I think it's much easier in the classroom environment than sure. it is sort of in, the public forums of social media. There's just a lightning response there that doesn't make for nuanced, sustained conversation. And it's almost always 
devoid of relational content. Mm -hmm. In my classes, I, I invest a lot of energy in building individual relationships with my students and encouraging them to do the same within the classroom. And if I can sustain, develop, and support that kind of relational mesh in the classroom and establish a few basic principles of conduct, we can talk about just about anything. Um, I mean, for example, I am very clear in my classes that we, I am not, I as the professor, I'm not going to use the N-word. You're not going to hear that in almost any situation ever come out of my lips. Um, just because it's too fraught and entirely too problematic for me as a white person to say that word in any sort of casual or even academic sense. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very careful. My students have helped me come to that understanding as well. Um, that kind of basic principle, talking about the importance of respect, about owning our own experience and speaking about that of not asking anyone in the room to speak on behalf of their whole racial community, that never works. And if we can then be in a conversation where we know each other, we can talk about what racial identity means. Right. We can talk about issues of systemic inequality in terms of access to health care, disproportionate um, uh, rates of incarceration, and our, even what it looks like on our own campus. Um, and I've, again, been impressed time and again by my students' willingness to make themselves vulnerable, to listen carefully, and to invite introspection in the midst of that classroom environment. And I've learned over the years that there are points where I need to intervene if things are not being productive. But if I can, again, build that relationship, set some ground rules, we can do a lot of good work together. And a lot of this work has kind of landed you in, in some forms of hot water at various stages. I mean, somehow you got uh, on the turning point watch list. Um, mm hmm and your story about how, you know, you got on that list or how you got yourself off of it seemingly without much of a confrontation. Talk about that experience because like just being on yeah. this list triggers all these outcomes that are yeah, super yeah, yeah. problematic. Well, as far as I know, I'm still on a list. I haven't checked in a while, but it's for those who don't know, it's something called Professor Watch List put out by a right-wing organization known as Turning Point. And they purport to identify, quote unquote, dangerous prof professors who advocate um, radical ideas in the classroom. I don't, can't quite remember their wording. Um, this, this gained a lot of attention a number of years ago. I was uh, the only professor from Montana that ends up staying on it. There was one of the professors who was there for the first day. He immediately, they immediately take his name, name off. Not sure what that's all about. But what I did in the midst of that was invite the leaders of Turning Point to sit down and have a beer with me. An article that I wrote, which ended up actually, crazily enough, being the thing that has been read more than anything I've ever written in my entire life. Wow. And I've written numerous books, lots and lots of articles. That's been read hundreds of thousands of times. It just blows me away. And I did end up you know, having a beer with a couple of other people because the turning point people themselves refused to acknowledge my invitation anyway, despite direct invitations on numerous times, even when members of their, of their organization has shown up on campus. I even invited the chapter presidents of turning point at the start of this academic year to sit down and just have, you know, a cup of coffee with me. And they also refused. Interesting. Um, but the point here is, is simply that, um, that gave me an opportunity to, to try to model the kind of connections I want to build over time. The conversation that I did have with someone who, while was not a member of Turning Point, agreed with many of their perspectives was really positive. I don't know that we chained each other's minds particularly, but we made a human connection. And I think that's one way to, to de-escalate the kind of intensity that emerges when these things happen. Um, so I, that's sort of, I guess, a model of the teaching I've been given of how to respond to these situations, both in terms of my faith experience and in terms of models that I've studied in my work on the civil rights movement. And I, I mean, 
And it seems like you handled that with, with grace and your attempts at direct communication with authenticity. Um, but an experience like that, I mean, it also triggers a lot of things like death threats and, and serious sort of challenges to, to your work. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, how how do you navigate that? I mean, you're yeah. you're 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 waiting in controversial territory. Does that just come with the territory, or you know, how do you kind of keep your motivation yeah. to keep pressing? Well, I mean, again, it, much of it comes out of the experience I spent working in the context of doing the anti-racism work in the Mennonite community. Mm-hmm. That was incredibly intense, but the expression that we would use in our collective was that the thirstier we become, the deeper the wells grow. And that was just sort of captured this sense of the resilience and fortitude that emerges when people are working together. So even though I've at points been a lightning rod for the far right, also for those who are very committed to anti-racism more recently, and we can get into that controversy if you want, but it's always for me been done in the context of community. I mean, every time that, that I've had been sort of found myself in a position where I've got a lot of negative energy directed at my way, there've always been a community of people who've been working alongside me, with me, Mm -hmm. uh, mentoring me, supporting me, um, and, and I, in turn, them, that I've been able to turn to and get wonderful support from. Um, everything from a supper club that we work, that we meet with every week to share a meal. Right now, we're doing that virtually, but uh, we've done that for more than 10 years. To the broader network I referred to earlier, that the people I can call to, uh, call on, and I know that they'll speak honestly to me, but that they'll also support me. So it's it's not so much about me as it is about that collective that I've been privileged to be a part of and continue to be a part of over time. That's what allows me to continue in work that is inherently demanding. Indeed, the support of the community. Um, you know, one of the things, I mean, you've engaged in our community in so many different ways. I think we we probably should briefly touch on the controversy with this, with this essay contest earlier in the year. I mean, it's seemed to me as this outsider trying to make sense of it, like no good deed goes unpunished, but what, yeah, tell us about that episode, what happened and, and, and how you got through it. Of all the experiences I've had working in the broad field of anti-racism, this was the most personally challenging of any of them Mm -hmm. by far. The, the basic context was um, I was asked to head up a Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration committee because our academic calendar had shifted. So we were now in session over the MLK Day. And we worked, the committee worked very closely with the local MLK committee and the community that's done a great celebration, continues to offer a great celebration every year. Our main goal was to channel our students to be a part of that. And that's all we did the first year. The second year, which was 2020's um, iteration, we also wanted to have something on campus. So we did two major initiatives. One was was to invite a recent graduate of the African-American Studies program, Michelle Cox, who now works for excellent organization, give a shout out to the Montana Racial Equity Project, Um, just a wonderful organization under the leadership of Judith Hellman who I've learned so much from, but we brought Michelle in to give a keynote address, did a wonderful job, challenging, direct, focused, so proud of her. Um, But we also sponsored a essay contest in which we were asking the entire university community from administrators through to students to reflect on the legacy of King and what that meant for them at University of Montana. We didn't want it to be a exercise in which people were sort of once again returning to celebrating King by just going out and painting a fence because King was never about just painting fences. Mm -hmm. He was about changing the status quo. And we were in wanting to invite the entire campus community to engage in that because we had heard from African-American members in the BSU um, and throughout the campus community, including those who were on the committee, that it shouldn't just be 
black people who have to do that work. White people got to step up and also be engaged in the work of dismantling racism. Right. Well, evidently, we didn't do as good a job as we could have in articulating that vision, describing it to the campus community, or inviting students to participate. We had a very small number of applicants. Um, we, in much to my disappointment, we had no essays submitted from any professors or administrators because we had separate categories. And in fact, the Black Student Union was very excited about the fact that they were going to be the ones that would judge the essays from their professors mm -hmm. and the administrators. Uh, that was going to be done solely by that group, but we didn't re receive any. Nonetheless, integrated community receives uh, a limited number of essays and we decide to go ahead and award what we thought were the top four essays. Um, it turns out that those top four essays were all written by white women. And we had them present at after Michelle Cox gave her talk. But in the subsequent publicity about the event, it took off on social media yeah. and really touched a raw nerve which I told it, it was a sense that, look, this day is set aside to celebrate MLK. Here's this predominantly white university celebrating these four white women. There are no people of color present. And, and part of the dynamic was simply that Michelle Cox, who's African-American woman, had been the central, the centerpiece of the whole thing, was just not included in that piece of publicity that went out. She was included in publicity, but not the one that took off and went viral. Sure. So at any rate, I stepped in after talking with our communications people and said, please send people in my direction so I can talk with them. Because it was clear to me that I had a lot of experience of dealing with these kind of controversies that I could be part of that conversation. There were a lot of conversations. And I also want to note that my colleague, um, Murray Pierce, the direct, the advisor to the Black Student Union was integral in, in developing a response to this, was very supportive. He and I worked closely together. He and I spoke with uh, at least one, one occasion uh, in, in person, but also in many other settings individually uh, with critics who just jumped all over this. And Murray's response is he feels that those who were responding so negatively to this had no sense of the larger context, not only of that event on MLK Day, but of the larger um, efforts that he was initiating, that I was part of initiating on campus, and that just was shoved aside. But it ended up having a lot of personal attacks sent my way. I, I don't want to set myself up, you know, as, as the poor guy in this. This is, again, comes with the nature of the territory. Mm -hmm. It was intense. It was a necessary work to do. I think we learned a lot. I think the university uh, opened itself to the criticism. I had a great conversation with the communication staff and their supervisors, went on for an hour and a half, um, that examined what had happened, what can we learn from this, how can we do better? And they invited me to part of that conversation. I think they listened and learned a lot. I think we collectively listened and learned a lot um, so that going forward, we can find a way to honor King's legacy without um, in any way offering insult to those who find and cherish that memory so, so very importantly. Well, I admire your, your value set and your persistence with that because, you know, this work is sensitive and, and it opens you just by playing on this field, you open yourself up to all kinds of, of criticisms and having the, the, the courage to press on and not just say, okay, I'm not going to play, play this game is, is, is admirable. So thank you for, for pressing on that and, and helping our institution deal with these sorts of issues better because I think we're getting better. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, and just to say again, it was a collective effort. It wasn't just me. I was out front sure. in this particular instance, but it was, again, so many people who um, offered important counsel, honest feedback, showed up at our class. I, I won't name, name the couple, but a, a, a couple showed up at our house one week and, and just the, sort of the, the depths of this and brought this big cookie 
that simply said on it, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and those kind of th- Those kind of gestures were really helpful. And I, again, I honor the voices of those who are criticizing us because they had a very important message to get across. We needed to hear that. We mm-hmm. continue to need to hear that. So speaking of things that kind of uh, give you hope, um, I'm not sure where you're at with this initiative, but yeah, your Hope 19 project. Are you... Yeah. Are submissions still open? Tell us about it. Are submissions still open? When are you going to sort of choose some, I don't know, are there right. winners? Is it a thing you can win? How does <laughs> it work? So I was casting about as what I could offer in the midst of this COVID-19. An idea that came to me, actually, it was echoing a project I'd done, oh, goodness, 25 years ago, where I'd asked 100 people in person what gave them hope and then did some writing about that. That's what I did this time was simply put it out there on social media and it ended up being picked up by statewide press and elsewhere, inviting people in the course of the month of April, so this is now closed, to respond to the question, what gives you hope in the midst of COVID-19 in 19 words or less? Okay. I was hoping for a thousand responses. That didn't happen, but actually that was a really important part of the response. So I got about 184 responses, 100 of them from Missoula, about uh, three quarter from Montana. They were wonderful. I ended up writing about it. Um, it appeared uh, just this last Sunday in the Missoulian, then picked up a couple other press sources around the state and across the country. Um, but the message that emerges out of this wonderful responses I did, I mean, it wasn't as, as many as I'd hoped for, but I, I learned a couple of things. One was that people found it just a little bit premature to be talking about hope in the midst of a setting where we are still seeing this pandemic raging across this right. country and, and in many cases around the world. Mm-hmm. And we're, it was just too raw a moment to do that, which is really important for me to reflect on. Uh, but those who did respond um, wrote wonderful little gems about nature, about family, about friends, about the sacrifices of our essential workers and healthcare workers. Just, just statement after statement after statement that it was, when I was reading them the first time just left me in tears again and again and again. Um, and the way I conclude the article that I wrote about it was to first of all quote a colleague of mine from our sister school over in Bozeman, Montana State University, who wrote to me when I'd invited her and some others to take part in this project by saying, you know, I don't do hope. She said, even though I don't have hope, I do the work anyhow, which I just found very moving Mm. and this this sense of determination was, was quite remarkable. And the other thing I commented on in the article was that I'd been anticipating I would have to edit out offensive replies. I was, con- I was sure. thinking, you know, this happens all the time. Anyone could just click on the link and enter with whatever they wanted. I didn't have to do that for a single response. Wow. I don't know why, but I have some guesses. And one of my guesses is in particular, given my study of awareness of and um, interactions with the white supremacy movement, is I think I didn't get a single white supremacist, white nationalist, or belligerent troll to respond to that because hate doesn't know how to do hope, Mm -hmm. that there is no hope in hate. And I think members of that community are just so afraid of and unfamiliar with the fragility and the fierceness of the very idea of hope that they just stayed away from the project as a whole. So it, was, it, was, it turned out differently than I thought it would. Um, but um, I just had this wonderful experience last night of a friend telling me, oh, I was walking down the street, saw one of my neighbors on the other side of the street, got to talking across the street. And she said she was on the way to mail a copy of that article I'd written to her brother who was having a really hard time in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic because she said, these are the words my brother needs to hear. And she was referring not to my words, but to the words I'd included of those responded in that article. And so it was just very gratifying to hear that that was proving meaningful and helpful to some folks in this really difficult time. 
Awesome. Well, always learning. That seems to be the theme that I'm taking away from this conversation. Tobin, how can uh, people find you online and, and learn more about your work? Yeah, I've got a blog called Truth and Grace. Just put my name, Tobin Miller Shear, Truth and Grace. The blog pops up. Or just put my name, University of Montana, and my page here on the university um, pops up, which shows the classes I teach and the kind of research that I do. So much to talk about. We could go on and on, but we're kind of coming up against uh, the limits of uh, of our time here today. But Tobin, sure. great thanks for, for joining me. We finally got it done. And uh, <laughs> geez, we're going to have to do number two because we, we pulled on. We, I avoided pulling on a bunch of threads here that would be great fuel for another conversation. So well, thank you. I really appreciate your careful consideration and thoughtful questions, Justin, and thanks for your work in making this podcast available to our community and outside the University of Montana as well. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Our awesome interns, Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson, Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes, and finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.